The views and opinions expressed by guests on this program are not necessarily the views of Thinking Bigger Business Media, Inc. or its employees. Welcome to Smart Companies Thinking Bigger Radio. Get the inside scoop on how America's most successful business owners transform their entrepreneurial vision into reality. And listen in as some of the top business minds in the country serve up practical advice, tips, and insights for growing your business. Now here's your host, Kelly Scanlon. Good morning. Welcome to Smart Companies Radio. I'm Kelly Scanlon, publisher of Thinking Bigger Business Media. Our guest today is Andy I Like Cotton Candy Rieger. He's the co-founder of J. Rieger & Company, and he's here today to talk about the connection between the Rieger Hotel and his brand and where it's going and the big announcement they're going to have coming out. Welcome to the show today, Andy. Thanks for having me. Okay. He was singing a little song to me earlier before we went on the air about Andy, I love cotton candy. So I just had to get that in there. Why did you decide to come in and co-found a distillery here in Kansas City? Uh, I was actually working in Dallas um, for an investment bank and being a a finance guy, uh, that was sort of the career I'd always thought that most people in my field aspired to have and learned a lot. And in that, uh, I always knew I wanted to do something else. And then a few things happened in life, including meeting Ryan Maybe, who mm-hmm. is my other co-founder, when they were in their second night of the Rieger restaurant being open back in December of 2010, and he threw out this wild and crazy idea of how we should bring back the old Jay Rieger and Co. Mm-hmm. Distillery. Thought he was nuts. I was very happy in Dallas. Uh, I didn't give it much validity at the time. He had just opened a restaurant, and it was just banter at the moment. And a year passed by, and then he wanted to have lunch on Christmas Eve of 2011. I saw how serious he was. And over the next six months, we did a lot of research, built out some projections, and really saw that if you started it as something that was a distribution-based distillery and you got the right people involved, you could actually do something really cool with it. Yeah, and it's actually it's taken Kansas City by storm. A lot of a lot of buzz about it. Obviously, tell us a little bit about the history of the Rieger and why it's so intriguing, and and how the distillery just fits right into that. So the whole history of the Rieger family, which really fits into everything, is Jacob Rieger, who was my great 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 grandfather. So there's a family connection. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. You're not the first person to actually say that. We've had <laughs> some people say, that. "Oh, I thought it was just a coincidence that you had the same last names." <laughs> We sort of scratched our head in those instances. But Jacob Rieger came over to America in the late 1870s with his son, Alexander. And he only had one son. And they settled in New York and then moved to Cincinnati and then moved to Kansas City. And that was a pretty common progression for Jewish individuals coming to America Mm -hmm. during the late 1800s. Um, The further west you went, that was sort of the path that a lot of them took. When they started in Kansas City, uh, Jacob actually started a grocery store. And so he was immediately, obviously, a business individual from that sense. Uh, sold his grocery store in 1885 and launched the distillery in 1887. Uh, He launched it down in Kansas City's West Bottoms District. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is a much deeper dive into history to understand, and that's the fact that Kansas as a state was the first state to enact a statewide prohibition of alcohol back in 1881. Kansas? The state of Kansas. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Very progressive, even back then. Carrie Nation, if you've heard of that Mm -hmm. name throughout the prohibition, she was the leader of the entire movement, and she was from Kansas. And so it only makes sense that Kansas went dry 38 years before the country decided it was a good idea. When Kansas went dry, what that did with our city was the only part of Kansas City that was truly developed on both sides of the state line, where a state line was just a street and nothing more or less, 
was the West Bottoms. Mm -hmm. And so you basically had the Missouri side of the West Bottoms flourish with alcohol-related activity, whether it was production, consumption, businesses that had parts of consumption associated with it. And that's really why Jacob Rieger sought out to have his distillery in that neighborhood. Another big reason why that neighborhood was popular at the time was because of the livestock exchange. Mm -hmm. So you'd have cowboys bringing in all these cattle, and then immediately they would take their money and want to go spend it. And so you had this massive industry down there. Uh, It's a really big reason why that neighborhood is named the wettest block in the world. Uh, Because at a time, people really thought that there was probably a higher alcohol concentration in that neighborhood than potentially anywhere else throughout the entire globe. And so from there, that was a big reason why Jacob did that. Um, In about 1900, his son Alexander took over running the business, and Alexander was the true business mind. Alexander started a thing where he actually did uh, mail-order whiskey delivery. And so he would send out these beautiful advertisements, of which we still have several of. If you check out our website, you can see lots of them. And he would send these one side, it was this beautiful advertisement with these deals that they would offer. And the other side was basically what we consider to look like a sushi menu. <laughs> and so you would just check your box and include your money in the envelope. And, you know, a month or two later, you would get Pony Express at your door with a case of whiskey. And there it was. It was actually delivered by Pony Express. I, that, <laughs> they didn't have cars back then, so I'd assume so. That's funny. So, but, so, but, so Alexander did yeah, that. Mail and, order. And cool. then uh, they actually have, we found marketing materials where they've claimed to have uh, over 250,000 unique customers. And so we would love to see what a financial statement looked like back then yeah. having that many customers. But just the fact that they had that wide of a reach, uh, just in the last year, we've even received calls from people as far as Maine, Florida, and Montana of people that have found bottles buried on their properties. Really? Um, They used to emboss the glass, and so it's really cool to be able to see. They type in Jay Rieger & Co. It says on the glass, Kansas City. They type that in, find us, contact us. And it's just fun to see the true distribution that they had. Alexander was the one that then, in 1915, built the Rieger Hotel, which is at 20th and Main Street. Mm -hmm. The reason why he built it was because In 1914, Union Station was completed as we now know it here in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. Uh, With Union Station being built, it really brought the traveling industry to Kansas City. There was always Union Station in the West Bottoms, but it was never massive. Uh, And the Mm -hmm. new Union Station was and still is the second largest train station in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so it basically created this boom of travelers' hotels, more or less. Uh, Traveling by train and uh, staying in hotels was really for the rich before then. And so this whole concept of having these hotels that were more or less budget hotels, but built with marble and yeah, tile and Yeah, opulent things, in that respect. The, yeah. the things that we would consider to be the Ritz-Carlton's of the yeah. day today uh, were basically budget hotels back wow. then. And so he built it for that, but really its main purpose and goal was to serve the brand. And so nowadays the old original advertisement that is on the south side of the wall has been restored. The mm-hmm. windows were lined with Jay Rieger & Co. products. The bar was branded all about Jay Rieger & Co. And so he really used that opportunity to sort of create a face for his brand in one of the most popular destination spots of the city. And so with the Rieger Hotel being on the south side of that district, the first thing all these travelers would see when they came to Kansas City was mm-hmm. Jay Rieger & Co., and yeah. so he was a smart man, um, unfortunately. Good marketer. Very much so. Uh, unfortunately, he couldn't control Prohibition. 1920, Prohibition took the distillery away. And then in 1926, he actually sold the hotel. Uh, and it just fortunately has retained the name the Rieger Hotel ever since. So that sort of takes us to where we began of in 2010 mm-hmm. when uh, Ryan, maybe, and Howard Hanna started the restaurant in the original lobby of the old Rieger Hotel and wanted to bring back the history of the building 
Ryan discovered that there was a distillery that was connected to it, and that's how it led into our conversation. Yeah, so how did you two, I know you said you were having uh, lunch or dinner with him on Christmas Eve, but did he seek you out? Uh, I mean, how did you uh, finally hook up? So when Ryan first was talking to me about it, uh, in 2010, it was really just an idea. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when we met in 2011 for that lunch, it was a business plan that he'll be the first to admit it was a hope and dream. Um, And it was built much more of a bar with a distillery. Right. Um, It wasn't really built out as a mass. His business land wasn't really built out as this massive distillery because what did he Mm -hmm. know best? How to make drinks. And so, of course, it was going to be bar focused. And so with that, it wasn't really something that was exciting for me. And so he really just, as he'll say to anybody, he just wanted a Rieger family member to approve of it and like it. Um, Unfortunately, I'm the last living person named Rieger from this family. Wow. And so I was sort of it mm-hmm. uh, from that perspective. And so with Ryan, um, <laughs> he'll always say it was part <laughs> of his master plan. But when we talked about the business plan and I gave him sort of a checklist of things, hey, if I were to start this, here are the things that I would find out first. Uh, when I checked back about a month and a half later to see what he had figured out, he said, oh, I've been so busy, I haven't had time. And I said, okay, let me let me do some of this for you. I'll help you out. Get then. Going. Then uh, I got done with it, and I go, great, here's what I found out. We talked about it, and I was still living in Dallas, working for the investment bank, and I said, here's another list. Why don't you take a look at it? Let's start, you know, let me, let me know what you yeah. find. And called about a month later, and he hadn't done any of it. So I go, <laughs> okay, let me do this. And I sort of saw the progression and how it was going and how involved I was going to be. But as I was digging deeper and deeper, I was helping him with his bar slash distillery business plan, but I was starting to discover that, if you could build a distribution-based business rather than a retail-focused mm-hmm. business, the ability to grow beyond your four walls was so extreme to the point that, you know, a bar is focused in its four walls. A mm-hmm. brand is focused everywhere but yeah. in its four walls. Yeah. And so I sort of saw that ability because at the investment bank, one of the big things I saw was that manufacturing companies were really fun to work with because I'm a math major. And so from that, they're very linear. You have all of these inputs you have all these different things that you're making, you have an output. And so you can see the progression of how the product evolves. But the problem was is that you can't really grow them in a single generation to be a large scale without giving away the mm-hmm. entire company. Yeah. And so the one thing that I didn't understand fully were brands because they didn't make sense in how people were able to raise money on them to build them out. And there was no logical manner in it whatsoever. And so with that, I was always like, man, what if you could actually do something where you put a brand with a manufacturing entity. And I honestly had no idea what that ever meant. Mm -hmm, And then it was sort of one day when I was looking at it from this distribution side, I was like, oh my God, this is the manufacturing thing with the brand. Yeah. And it just clicked. Yeah, and combine that with here in Kansas City, whenever the Rieger has uh, such a strong following in the history and, you know, it's just a part of Kansas City's fabric. I mean, how could you go wrong almost? The, The entire concept that Ryan and Howard built down at that location at 20th and Main Street uh, was such a need. Uh, it sort of filled a void of this historic restaurant done right. And it is really fantastic to see how well they did with it. And I can't be the sitting here lying to you, but 
that's a big reason why we had such great early success. Yeah, because absolutely. Because their concept of connecting the Rieger name with history, mm-hmm. with authenticity, made it so easy for us to start. And our ultimate goal, and we're slowly starting to see this, is we'll get people now on our tours, whereas at the beginning, everyone was coming to our tours because they loved the Rieger. And now they're coming on tours of the J. Rieger & Co. Distillery, and we ask people by a show of hands, can you please tell me who all has been to the Rieger? Mm-hmm. And you'll get about 50%, 60%, and then I'll say, who all has never heard of the Rieger restaurant? And you'll get about 10 20% now that have never even heard of it. And so it's cool to see that we're now going beyond that, um, yeah. but we are now creating business for the restaurant, too. And so it's just a great, it's a great informal, mm-hmm. non-financial partnership that we really have that us together really creates a good tie. We're talking here today with Andy Rieger, who is the co-founder, along with Ryan Maybe of the J. Rieger and Company Distillery. We were talking a little bit about the branding and, you know, in your finance background, Andy, you had seen manufacturers especially that figured out a formula when it came to distribution, and then you had worked with brands, and then you always thought marrying the two, well, you'd really have something, and you've hit on that here with the distillery and the history here in Kansas City and the hotel. Now, along with your um, with all of that, you've got the bottles that you your product. You tie that to uh, to the brand and the history. How do you do that? So, I mean, first of all, one of the things that we really thought was excessively important was not forgetting about any of the minor mm-hmm. details. Uh, when people are starting brands, so often they over, they skip something. Whether it's they say, let me use a for a liquor, for example, let me use just a, a plastic cork top. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It might not matter to 90% of the people, but what about that 10% that does matter too? Right. And so with everything, with our branding on our bottles in particular, you know, we're coming back from this distillery that existed for eight, from 1887 until 1920. Mm-hmm. And so that vibrant history that it had, we could bring it back one of two ways, a new modern brand or truly a continuation of the old brand. And so in the fact that we actually own the original trademark that was founded in 1887 uh, and we operate under it, we use the same logo that it operated under, we do sort of a similar approach to the way Budweiser looks at their cans. If you Mm -hmm. very quickly look at the original Budweiser can that came out for two seconds, you'll immediately know that's a Budweiser can, even from afar. But if you compare it next to a Budweiser can today, it looks nothing alike. But it's just that iconography that you understand is a continuation of the same mm-hmm. brand. And so for us, with our bottles, when we started the whiskey, and that was our first product we led with, we knew it had to look very similar. So that if someone knew and had had a bottle from back in those days, and then they saw this bottle, they would immediately know that it's a connection to the J. Rieger & Co. today. The size of the bottle is different. Its shape is slightly different, but it's very reminiscent of what it used to look like. And the label structure is very similar to what it used to look like as well. And so bringing back all those characteristics really helped amplify our whole entire concept of we are a continuation of this. This isn't just some made-up marketing story that we made to try to sell hooch, but this is a real authentic brand that used to exist, and here it is as a continuation being led by two guys, and one of them is the original great-great-great-grandson of the founder of the company. And so everything from truly making it look as if the bottles fit with the old company uh, to using the same slogan that mm-hmm. they used in the olden days, which was oh so good. Uh, that's on all of our bottles. Yeah. But then our bottle styles, all the whiskeys that we'll ever make will be in the same bottle, the same label format. Uh, the label will look slightly different, but uh, it'll be a connected brand so that you understand when you see that bottle somewhere, you'll immediately recognize that's a J. Rieger & Co. whiskey product. Or our vodka and our gin right now, 
They're in square bottles with a certain label format. Um, all of our products that are non-whiskeys will be in that bottle style, and they will all have that look to it. And so just really trying to create that connectivity of the brand is something we went for. But then even going as far as in products such as our vodka, mm-hmm. um, our vodka is themed Union Station. We spoke earlier about how with Union Station being built, the hotel was built. With the hotel being built, then the guys were able to start a restaurant in 2010. And with the restaurant being started, we started talking about bringing back the distillery. So we kind of looked at it as without Union Station, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today. Right. So. Our vodka bottle has a lot of iconography from Union Station, including a picture of one of the first train cars leaving the station on the inside of the label. Uh, Our gin bottle has a lot of iconography from the Prohibition years, and then the inside of that label is actually the original front of the old distillery. Um, And the whiskey bottle has, we talked about it, but on the inside of that bottle has a portrait of Jacob Rieger on the back label, Um, and then on the inside of the front label is actually an original 1895 map Mm -hmm. of Kansas City, and there's a little star where the original distillery was in the West Bottoms. So we, again, just try to make sure that the brand stays connected to what it was. Mm-hmm. Don't forget our past. Yeah, just carrying that all the way through the, the branding and the marketing. Now, you have actually uh, joined forces with some others outside of the area in order to take this even further regionally. Talk to us about that. One of the guys that we are working with, um, he's our main operating partner, uh, he was the master distiller and chief operating officer of Maker's Mark okay. from 1994 to 2008. Okay. And so he left in 2008 uh, when they went through several sales in a row. And when he left, he started a private consulting business. Uh, he has helped start over about 50 distilleries in the United States, most of which he doesn't have a continuing ongoing presence with. Uh, recently, as he's starting to slow down the consulting business and pick his few winners, we're fortunate that we're one of those that he wants to be with for the rest of his life. Um, and so he's an ongoing operating partner with us. Uh, another gentleman, his name is Steve Olson. He's considered the highest paid spirits educator in the world. Uh, he's paid by the Spanish government to promote their products, the Greek government to promote their products. Diageo, who is the largest liquor conglomerate in the world, he founded the equivalent of the Master Sommelier course for spirits. Um, and he has been a fantastic resource beyond belief. He's actually the one that then introduced us to Tom Nickel. Tom ran Tanqueray for mm-hmm. 25 years. And so with Tom running Tanqueray, uh, his most recent stint being the master distiller, um, he's considered one of the top, if not the top, gin distiller in the entire world. And when he retired back in July of 2015, he had already been to Kansas City, met us, knew that he didn't want to fully retire. And so he became another operating partner of ours and helped us launch our gin program. And so as we come out with new gins, they will always be the brainchild of the gentleman who's considered by most mm-hmm. gin circles to be the best gin distiller on the planet. And you have expanded now into, what, nine different states? Uh, roughly. Mm-hmm. Um, we're currently in New York, New Jersey, Washington, D.C., Kansas, Missouri, Illinois, Nebraska, uh, Minnesota, uh, Wisconsin, and Colorado. And so all of those, in some way or another, make strategic sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just a random amount of states. Um, A lot of distilleries like to just send bottles out and hope that a supplier or a distributor, excuse me, in a certain state wants to pick up their products. But for us, we knew that it has to be much more strategic. You have to have a reason. You have to have connections because, for example, we just launched in Colorado a month ago and the sales there are now higher than in New York. Wow. We've been to New York seven or eight times in the last three months, which is when we launched back in March. The reason for that is because we have so many great connections in Colorado, and they immediately start pushing the brand, and they start creating brand ambassadors out of customers, and it just builds yeah. on itself over and over and over again. And so fortunately for us, 
the quality of the products, the look of the branding, as we talked about mm-hmm. earlier, the general story, and then ultimately the price point um, are things that keep bringing everyone back over and over again. And that's what our entire business yeah. is built on. So when you're going into uh, possibly another state, you're looking really for more somebody who is passionate about it. Uh, it's going to be the ambassador, as you mentioned, and really what a franchiser would look for, somebody who's going to carry that brand and, and feel like an owner themselves. Uh, almost. Is that what you're looking for? You're absolutely right. I mean, that person truly is the franchise owner, more or less, in that state. And one of the biggest misconceptions of our entire industry is that, and small distilleries get caught in this trap all the time, is they meet with two distributors. And let's say one is the biggest distributor in the entire state, and they say, we serve all 10,000 liquor licenses in the state of Missouri. Mm -hmm. And then they meet with this small guy that goes, well, we only serve 450 liquor licenses in the state. And so the little guy says, man, I could be in 10,000 places. Even if they all take just one bottle, that's 10,000 bottles. That's mm-hmm, awesome. Mm-hmm. That's who I want to go with. Yeah. As opposed to the little guy when they say, oh, wow, you're actually going to care about my brand. You're going to understand my story. I'm going to be able to know all of your sales reps. My story is going to be communicated in a very clear and thorough manner. Every time that they're out on the street, this makes sense. And so mm-hmm. you get a lot of these brands that actually suffer because it's more or less greed where they look at situation not from a logical, psychological standpoint, but more or less from just a sense of thinking that they're going to get really rich really fast and not really taking the time to understand all the consequences of that certain decision. So for us, we're not with the biggest guy in all the states because of that in particular. Our largest distributor has 34 reps in their state. Wow. The largest in certain states have hundreds upon hundreds. And so when you consider that that's the largest that we've gone with, it's a pretty cool thing to see our success and how well we've done. Yeah, and I think, too, consumers these days like uh, knowing that they're part of something really special and maybe something that's a little exclusive in the sense that it isn't widely available to every single store that you go into. I think they kind of like that a little bit, don't you? It it definitely was something that... uh, when we first launched, we were only in Missouri for the first three months, and the Kansas stores hated it because all their customers would go to Missouri mm-hmm. to buy it, and we did so well in our first three months that it didn't matter where it was. Wherever it was, people were calling and asking for it. Even certain liquor stores had to put it behind the counter because people would take so much of the inventory right off the bat. And so from that standpoint, scarcity is a great thing, mm-hmm. but there's also times when scarcity isn't a great thing. And so once people learn to love the brand – you have to keep them hooked. And so you have to make sure that it's always available for them because the first time that, for example, let's say a bar, uh, let's say that a bartender has put our whiskey in a cocktail or a vodka or a gin in a cocktail, Mm -hmm. and then we run out, and then he can't get it for two weeks. He's probably not going to put that cocktail on the menu ever again or use our product in a cocktail again. He doesn't have a reliable distributor. But products that do have the whole concept of scarcity behind them, they will never be put in those. And so they can enhance the brand value on the others because it gets people interested in the entire product line to say, oh, I can't wait to see what they do next. Mm -hmm. And many, many ways we've talked about this question before, but uh, really how is your distillery different from so many of the other ones that we're seeing pop up all over the country, whether it's in its physical, we've talked a lot about the way you've really penetrated the brand throughout everything, but about the, the physical distillery itself, does it have, is it different from some of the others here? Well, so our physical distillery, you look at the really simple business model. Mm-hmm. The simple business model is uh, the brew pub model. Yeah. You know, you make your product, you sell it on site at a bar, you have lots of margins that you can collect because you're not buying alcohol for it. And you make money right off the bat. Mm -hmm. Well, that's fantastic and great, but 
it makes your focus go on the retail component of yes. it. Because you say, okay, how can I maybe add a couple bar stools, or how can I stay open later, or what other offerings could I give to people? Could I add a patio? Mm-hmm. Things along that line, as opposed to how do I change up my product to make it available to the mass markets? How do I make my brand more approachable? How do I lower my cost of production? Those types of things that really make you focus. And so for us, not having any type of retail concept on site has made our attention be 100% on the concept of distribution. What it ultimately does is it brings people to us, not because they want to drink our product on site, but because they've fallen in love with our brand and they have to see where it's made just to make it valid. Mm-hmm. And so with that whole concept, our ability to focus 100% on distribution has allowed us to grow way faster than we would have ever thought because we are only doing business with people that are interested in the distribution of the product. And so if you don't sell your product to someone over and over again in a liquor store, then we fail Mm -hmm. because we don't have that extra revenue to fall on. And so we understand how sensitive it is for us to make sure that our products are distributed the right way, stories are told properly, and the products are always tasting great and the same every single time. And so it's just a function of us then making sure people know the story. You've also publicly announced a collaboration with Boulevard Brewery. Tell us about that. So this has been something that uh, we're pretty excited about. Um, To sort of give everyone an understanding, large breweries have to dump beer down the drain all the time for various reasons. Whether they have to create a large test batch to see how it'll work Mm -hmm. in the massive fermenters that they're going to create it in, uh, and they only need a couple gallons of it, but they have to do the uh, test batch to scale. Um, whether a beer, once it's produced, it's out of spec slightly and they don't feel comfortable releasing it to the public in its current state, whether it's storage conditions, potentially, let's uh, say, a cooler dies mm-hmm. and the beer goes above a certain temperature for a certain period of time, mm-hmm. uh, they don't want to sell it at that point, um, or even they produce too much beer and they're unable to sell it because you don't want to miss sales in this industry. Right. And so any of those reasons, and there's a variety of others, but they dump that beer down the drain. And so when they dump that down the drain, we came up with the idea and concept of why don't you give us that beer? And beer is no different than whiskey before it gets distilled. Hmm. And we said, what if we distilled your beers in our distillation system? And we created a product where it's sort of us recycling beer rather than it going down the drain. And you create this entirely new product category. And that's why we're actually calling it Left for Dead. And so it sort of has, <laughs> I love it. I it love has it. these old <laughs> characteristics to it of... This something that is dead that we're resurrecting in a different life form. Mm-hmm. And so it, that's why the label that you've seen has this ACDC sort mm-hmm. of back in black feel. It has two serpents eating themselves because it's a collaboration as opposed to just one. Mm-hmm. And so we really try to just emphasize that. But it's really fun because collaborations are a great thing for our community. And us being partnering with Boulevard has been something truly special for us. Um, the ability that they are lending their name to us shows great confidence Absolutely. Uh, in our work and validity in everything we're doing because being such a great, awesome brand like Boulevard is, the ability for them to just give anyone their brand isn't something that happens too often. And so we're really proud of that. And it, again, just shows that we're on the right track with the things that we're doing. And you couldn't pick a better collaboration partner than Boulevard, especially in the alcohol industry. Right. And this is going to be exciting to watch. Absolutely. Absolutely. And about that story, uh, you have relied so much on the history and the past combined with you know your distribution model and so forth to get you where you are today. What's the next stage? Where do we go moving forward? Um, you. You know, we are very fortunate with our operating partners. Mm-hmm. Those guys have run the best companies and advised the best companies in the entire world. So with that, we know that growth is 
absolutely in our future. What that exactly looks like, I can't tell you. We're only in our 19th month right now. Yeah, you're growing fast. It's shocking to believe. And we thought that where we were located would be our 10 to 15 year long building. Mm -hmm. Uh, 15,000 square feet never felt so small in our entire lives. (laughs) And so from that standpoint, we're always trying to figure out what's next and ahead in three months. But we also, weirdly enough, have to plan five years down the road because whiskey if you want to mature it properly, is going to take at least five years to age. And so we have to put away all this product mm-hmm. today. And so we're distilling every single day. Uh, we're putting away a barrel and a half of whiskey every day. Uh, that's pretty rare for relatively new distilleries to do. And being able to really focus again on distribution and going forward is something that we're into. And we're always looking at market expansion, but we're not looking at being in every market. We're mm-hmm. looking at really diving deep into the markets that we're in for strategic purposes because the more well-known you are in a state, mm-hmm. then the better you're going to do in the neighboring states. Absolutely. And then you can slowly build that mountain as opposed to that plateau. Yeah, it sounds like you're on the right track there. Thanks for stopping by and sharing your story, and we wish you all kinds of luck for the future. Thanks so much for having me. And if you'd like to learn more about how to grow your business, please visit our website at ithinkbigger.com. Follow us on Facebook at Thinking Bigger Business Media or on Twitter at ithinkbigger.com. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.